VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, Athens, Aqueducts and Urban Architecture. Cities can be a climate solution. Densely packed places with good public transport, effective healthcare, and plenty for everyone to do. Add in clean energy and they become carbon efficient centers. Cities can also be a climate disaster. Lack of vegetation, big concrete buildings, and poor airflow create hot zones that can kill during extreme heat events. All city dwellers have experienced this urban heat island effect. You can feel it when you leave the city. It's just much cooler. It's not a huge problem until it is. Europe is in the middle of its second life-threatening heat wave of the summer. It hit 100 degrees in London, 109 in Paris. Some forecasters have predicted temperatures in Delhi could reach a record-breaking 46 degrees Celsius this week. Authorities have issued an alert and asked vulnerable people to avoid the outdoors. In Japan, we've been telling you about the unprecedented heat wave this week that's got many worried about a possible shortage of electricity to keep the air conditioners going. During heat waves, cities can be up to 15 degrees Celsius warmer than surrounding regions. It's an issue faced by all major cities around the world. As we warm the planet and more of us move to cities, it's going to get worse. By 2050, nearly 1,000 cities will see their average summer highs reach or surpass 35 degrees Celsius. That's triple the number of cities experiencing those temperatures today. Which is where my guest today comes in. Eleni Mirivili is the first global chief heat officer, appointed by the United Nations Habitat and the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. She works with other chief heat officers in countries such as the US, Sierra Leone, and more recently, Bangladesh. I sat down with Eleni to find out how these newly created positions are making cities more resilient, why she considers modern cities to be death traps, and how cities can be redesigned to cope with extreme heat. So you are the global chief heat officer. That's kind of a unique job title. Where did this journey start for you? 
I, I started working in cities. I was elected into city government in the city of Athens, and I worked as a deputy mayor for urban nature and urban resilience. At the same time, we were developing in Athens a resilience strategy, and it was a beautiful process that we did through the Resilient Cities Network. And this whole uh, process kind of made it clear that the main challenge for Athens is extreme heat. It became more and more clear to me as I was participating and working in different city networks around the world that cities were not really talking enough about extreme heat and weren't preparing enough about extreme heat. This is why I started working together with the Arsh Rock Resilience Center, which is really focusing on heat resilience. I brought them together with the city of Athens. And so I was appointed the first chief heat officer in Athens, which was the first for Europe. And the second globally, the very first chief heat officer was in Miami. And it's, it basically attests to the fact that we really need to pay attention to heat, especially in urban centers, because this is something that our cities are not made for and our bodies, most of the planetary population lives in cities, are yeah. not really made for. And we think about global warming and we hear numbers like, well, let's keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius. And, you know, we are already at 1.1 degrees Celsius seem like small numbers, but the way they manifest is that in cities, during heat waves, you can have the temperature of a city being 10 or 15 degrees Celsius higher than surrounding rural areas. Mm -hmm. That is how extreme things have become. And the most recent occurrence of that kind of heat is we learned that this summer in Europe, heat waves killed 15,000 people. It's staggering. We knew that there were several thousand people that died this summer in Europe because of the extreme heat and drought, but it's shocking to hear of the number uh, 15,000. One thing that it's important to know is that there are parts of the world that are heating faster than other parts of the world. So we know that Europe is actually heating up 20% faster than the rest of the planet. But also we know that the zone around the, uh, the equator is, is really heating up almost twice as fast as the rest of the world. So again, we have great inequities. The other aspect of your question had to do with cities. So cities are hotspots. Cities are hotspots because our cities are built wrong are built wrong because we thinking of the fact that we have all the fossil fuels in the world to heat and cool our cities as much as we wanted, we really stopped thinking about using the wisdom that architecture and urban planning had used for years and years before. We had all these tricks that had slowly developed in our cultures, the hot cultures, and we kind of forgot them because we had fossil fuels dealing with concrete and cement and asphalt and glass and steel and all these things are terrible for the new climate era because all these materials absorb heat during the day and they lock it in and then they radiate it during the evening. This is really significant. You were talking basically about the urban heat island. The urban heat island is this difference, which you said could be up to 10 or 15 degrees Celsius between the center of the city in relation to the outskirts of the city 
these areas are, are can be really, really, really cooler. And if you're actually in a bus or driving, you can feel it as you drive out of the city. Suddenly, you know, you, your body feels different and it, the difference can be incredible. So but even if the difference is smaller, like even if we're talking about a difference with two, you know, four degrees or three degrees, it could mean the difference between life and death. The centers of our cities, our cities, the way they're built today are death traps. Well, people think of cities as like thriving centers where the most exciting things are happening. You can get the best jobs. It's true. You can get more money. You can go and enjoy yourself and you're calling them death traps. Well, you're right. Cities are beautiful and amazing. And I, I love cities. I mean, cities are dynamic and full of life and full of solutions and opportunities and and then when you have a heat wave, they empty out. Everybody hides into their own houses or indoors and the public spaces, uh, which is where the city lives and where the dynamism of the city and the beauty of the city is kind of disappears. This addresses the fact that heat actually affects economies and affects well-being um, beyond health. But let's start with health. So health is the main and the first impact of heat. We call heat the silent killer because of all the extreme climate events that are linked to climate change. Heat is the number one killer. And people still don't know this decision makers and policy makers do not understand that heat is really what we have to focus on because we lose more people from heat than from any other thing and the other things are more dramatic so the media yeah, it's much get storms, easier you'll get floods, exactly you you'll have get like photographs of yes. all these major events yes. and people realize their devastation yes but when heat kills it's, there are no photos to be taken exactly because tend to not publish photos of dead exactly. people. Exactly. And also there's a time lag between the heat wave and the and the time that we know the data of who were the victims of the heat. So that's another problem, right? And there has been a lot of underreporting of heat-related mortality and morbidity because often people go to the hospital and they have like a heart attack or they have a, a stroke and nobody reports that it was really hot today and probably it the, the, the death or the problems that these people is having is related to heat. Yeah. But we know that heat affects the body in multiple ways and we still have a lot to learn from it. But, but we know that it's very much underreported. The other thing that's underreported is work-related injuries. In the United States, a report came out last year that looked at 11 million cases of work-related injuries and over, I think, 10 years. And they correlated it with the heat of the days where the injuries happened. And they found out that the correlation is extraordinary between as soon as heat rises, people start having accidents in their jobs because they lose concentration, they get dizzy, they are tired, etc., etc. Well, right? that makes sense. I mean, this has it happened to so all of us sense. at some point where exactly. we got too hot and are not able to function as exactly. well as we normally do. Exactly. And you know what is interesting, but again, not surprising, is that the low-paying jobs are the ones that have the highest kind of injuries related to them. And there is a conjecture, which I think is really interesting, that the people with the lowest-paying jobs, they don't have a cooling 
they are also dealing with energy poverty and they don't have the capacity of cooling themselves during the night so they don't sleep well so they go to work really tired so it makes them even more prone to having yeah. a now you were in athens in a relatively rich country and you found ways to try and adapt to heat and we'll talk about those solutions i come from india i grew up in the western part of india and dealing with heat over there when you don't have the ability to buy air conditioning is very different from what happens in rich countries so can we just talk about the solution sets for how we can deal with heat if you have the money and if you don't have the money in athens even though it's kind of like at the <laughs> the bottom of the global north um the first thing that we did and we kind of think that other cities should do and can do is do a heat map we have to figure out where are the hot spots where are the hottest parts of the city usually it's the poorest parts the poorest neighborhoods and the neighborhoods that have no trees and that they have the worst infrastructure and housing conditions it could be a map that is a a quick map but usually from satellite data you can get some sense even if it's not very granular you can get some sense of where are the parts of your city that are really suffering and then you have to start figuring out what are the cheapest solutions and the most effective solutions for cooling those parts of the city so let's talk about the solutions yes. what are the ways in which you can cool cities all right you said that when you are living in a relatively rich country or you're like a middle class or upper middle class person at least you can afford air conditioning but air conditioning is not going to it can't get us out of this this is not a solution because air conditioning not only is a very egotistical way of cooling yourself down because it actually pumps hot air out to the public space so you're heating up the public space but it also sucks a lot of energy so it's an incredible consumer of energy so the projection is that by 2050 we're going to have three times as much demand for electricity that is related to cooling uh, living spaces um this means that we are going to need just for cooling our living spaces the same amount of electricity that all of india and all of china are today consuming wow. for everything that they do in a year Yeah that's This kind of a mind-boggling thing. Staggering. Yeah. It's staggering and it's 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 it, I'm afraid that when we're talking about mitigation and we're putting our goals our mitigation goals I don't think people are taking into consideration the demand for air conditioning. And this is really really serious because it's going to blow us out of the water as far as our projections are concerned. So we should use air conditioning but we should use it very carefully especially for the most vulnerable populations because it's a matter of life and death if you get somebody who's an old senior person which is our main vulnerable community often people that live alone that do not have people to check in on them we often lose those people from heat if we can get them to an air conditioned space that's life saving so we need air conditioning we have to though understand that air conditioning is not going to be a solution it's a fool's concept if we think that we can air condition ourselves out of this that's why city governments are important and national governments we we need to put in solutions that are generally cooling the city 
the cities have to cool themselves down, find ways to yeah. cool them down. I mean, one one that comes to mind, which lots of people have talked about, is planting lots of trees, is creating green spaces, That's right. is allowing more air to flow freely. That's right. And bringing water elements to the surface. What A does lot. that mean? Like having water on the surface in as many ways as you can so you right. can have a oh, water bodies water right. bodies right. or water sprinklers or you know whatever depending on if if you have a very humid heat or not so if you have a very dry heat you should have a lot of water elements as many as you can for example in Athens we've totally covered all of the rivers and streams that we have it's all cemented in we don't have anything and no water in the surface and oh. we don't have for some reason we don't use these nice sprinklers where kids go and play and in kids playgrounds we should we it's it's the perfect climate to have water coming up and trees so the water and trees together really can lower temperatures incredibly up to six even seven degrees celsius wow. we can lower temperatures and one of the ideas you were pursuing was to try and use the ancient aqueducts yes. that exist in athens yes. uh, and bring in water to try and cool the city tell us about that so one thing is to map it out see where the problems are and where vulnerability is and exposure. The second thing is to find really backup systems. Where are your water sources? How can you make sure that you use your water sustainably and you don't spend it and you make sure that you find more circularity in the ways that you use your water? Because water is the beginning and the end of everything. In order to have plants, you need water. In order for people to survive, we need water. Everything, water is like really what we're going to be needing and what we're probably going to be fighting for, like in the near future. So this is really important for cities to figure out the resources as far as water is concerned. So in Athens, we figured that we have this ancient aqueduct, which was built in Roman years in 150 AD, that is 24 kilometers, engineering miracle. Wow. It is all underground, all underground that moves water from the outskirts of the city into the center of the city. And still today, it has a lot of water in it. Mm. And we don't use this water. It's, it's, it's water that is really good quality, so we can use it for irrigation and other non-potable uses. And so we have a whole plan of tapping into this water and creating more green spaces and a whole big green corridor, which traverses eight different municipalities in the whole metropolitan area. And with the Ars Rock Resilience Center, we're actually doing a whole collaboration with this project to have specific guidelines for cooling. So the trees that are planted, we are checking out what are the resilient trees, not for today, but for three decades, four decades from now, when the heat is going to be worse, how can we use water in the most effective ways to bring temperatures down and also materials? What are the best materials? So this is the big project that's yeah. called the Adrian Aqueduct Cooling uh, District or Cooling Corridor. There's another solution set which came from studying how societies work. So one of the iconic heat death study is showing how old people in Chicago died in areas where there was more social disconnection or really loneliness compared to other parts where there were more social connections and thus people were able to keep an eye out for the vulnerable and uh, take care of them during heat events. Coming from India where, you know, typically families are large and they live in the same households, there is just an automatic 
concern for older people living in the same household. And the deaths typically, even though they are underreported, tend to be lower in those hot countries because of those social connections. Yeah. That feels like a solution that won't just help reduce heat deaths, but improve social cohesion. Social cohesion is a number one issue for resilience. You're absolutely right. All the data show that, you know, if we have social cohesion, uh, it actually amounts for much more than other types of infrastructural support that we can bring to, let's say, a neighborhood. I think of dealing with heat in three big kind of pillars. One pillar has to do with awareness. Awareness raising is, because heat is a silent killer, a big part of it and, and, and uh, is to advocate for it and to kind of make it clear that heat exposure is dangerous, especially in hot environments like Greece or India, where we've been dealing with heat. A lot of the people don't take it seriously. They think, oh, you know, it's another heat wave, but it's not. And more and more we realize it. They're longer, more intense and more frequent. And they're really, really deadly. So this is one thing. And what we did in Athens is that we created a categorization system. It's categorizing of heat waves. And in Seville, we worked together with, with the Arshrock Resilience Center. Again, they supported us with this categorization system. They also did naming of heat waves, which also both the categorization and the naming can really create a, a really significant change of the awareness of people and the capacity of media of to course, communicate, because right? Because we know from storms and hurricanes, which do have names, we find that makes it easier to talk about a particular event that is going to happen. Yeah. So I really, really like this, this idea of the fact that, you know, when we are thinking of a hurricane and we have a category four or a category five hurricane, you never think of picking up the phone and ordering a pizza because you never can, you can't even <laughs> imagine a guy delivering it in a, in a hurricane, but we never think of that when we have a heat wave because there are no categories and there are no data right of to tell you that you know don't get anybody to come to your house right now because it's a deadly heat wave yeah. so so categories and naming are really important and whether you are in India or whether you are in Athens, you always have universities and the meteorological community and the research community, et cetera, can always put into effect a, a really robust categorization system. Yeah. This is like the awareness part. The second one is preparedness, which is like, how do you make sure that you protect the most vulnerable? And this is like an aspect that has to do with early warning systems. The secretary general of the UN, Guterres talked about the need to create early warning systems for all. So this is part of creating the possibility of people to get alerted to what is going on. And this really links very well with the categorization, but also to set conditions to protect people. Like you said before, with, you know, places that are air conditioned for now, at least. Yeah, that's true. I mean, now you walk around in major cities and you'll find cooling centers. That's right. And they tend to be typically places like libraries where people congregate, but they could be malls, they could be other large spaces like indoor sports centers. True. Uh, which can be the places where if you don't have access to cooling during a heat wave, you can go. Or really cool parks. Yeah, that's with, true. With water running through them. 
but yeah, this is like a really important issue. And you, we have to figure out as cities the issues of transportation to these places because it's difficult often for the older people or the kids or women with children or people that are sick, etc., to, to that have pre-existing conditions to mm-hmm. go to these places. So this is an important thing. And the other thing is, which is really significant, which you touched on, is social cohesion. So the neighborhood. In Greece, also, the neighborhood is still a good, a viable kind of social uh, nucleus, let's say. So having people checking in on people in your building, like knocking on doors, thinking of the older people, thinking of, you know, women living alone with kids and stuff and checking in on them on heat waves and creating a network of people that support you is crucial, crucial. And it doesn't cost anything. And the final thing, the third pillar has to do with redesigning cities and figuring out ways to make cities both the public space but also the build sector cooler. After the break, each city has its own set of challenges when it comes to tackling extreme heat. So how are chief heat officers around the world working together to come up with solutions? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. What we're talking about here is mostly solutions. Yes. We know the problem. The yes. problem's getting worse. But it feels to me that every sector we look into, there are all these solutions that if you think through them, we can apply and we can apply pretty cheaply. We can apply at scale in many, many parts because there are simple principles that apply regardless of what kind of capacity you have in your city, whether you're in a developing country or a developed country. And so it's interesting that there is a global role now for a chief heat officer. How many chief heat officers are there in cities and how are you collaborating? Right now, there are seven chief heat officers and there, uh, there's one in Miami, in Athens, there's a brilliant woman that is a colleague of mine who's going to be stepping in as a chief heat officer in Athens as I move to the global chief heat officer role. There's um, an incredible friend and colleague in uh, Freetown, Sierra Leone, who is uh, who is also a chief heat officer. Another incredible woman in Santiago de Chile, Cristina. Sureya is in Monterrey, Mexico. And we have uh, two women that are also in um, Melbourne, Australia. So altogether, we are seven chief heat officers. all women. Oh, and Marta Segura, who's also in Los Angeles. It's all women. 
the truth is that there's a lot of women in the adaptation and resilience fields in climate change. You can you can really see a difference in the mitigation and the adaptation world. The mitigation has many more men in it and the adaptation and resilience historically and now still has a lot of women in it. This is kind of true in finance too. There are a lot of men in investment banking and there are a lot of women in ESG. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. huh. It, it uh, tends to fall into our laps, the kind of trying to to clean up the messes that the men are making. Right? Eh? Yeah, <laughs> this is uh, this is a role that needs to be done more. Yeah, well, <laughs> but that's just seven cities. Heat waves are happening in a lot of cities. Why are there not more chief heat officers? Oh, there will be. I'm certain that there will be. Since recording this interview late last year, an eighth heat officer, Boucher Afrin, was appointed in April to represent North Dhaka in Bangladesh. Heat affects a lot of different parts of a city. You have to have a cross-sectoral response to it. You know, from heat to public spaces and their infrastructures, to social services and welfare services, and health kind of tied into that, as well as the economics of the city. Like, for example, for us in Athens, tourism. We have to figure out issues that have to do with our visitors and how we can make sure that we create experiences that are okay for our visitors during heat waves or extremely hot days, for example. So it's great to have a person to coordinate, not only within the city, the different departments that have to talk to each other to put together plans and responses to heat, but also to bring in the different stakeholders that you have to bring in, especially strategic kind of different people from the private sector, from the uh, research and universities, from other levels of government, from the communities, at the different neighborhoods, especially the uh, stakeholders from the vulnerable populations to talk to them, to understand where the problems are and what the solution should be. So this is a crucial role in cities that I think more and more cities will take on. It's already happening, but these chief heat officers are, are kind of strategically located, one in each continent or two in each continent. And we are also talking with each other, sharing information, figuring out what the problems are and what the challenges are, what we could do to scale things up, and most importantly, how to finance things. How will we finance adaptation and resilience? Are there places that just cannot adapt to heat? Yes, and we have to think about finding spaces that are, that are better for people to live in. Sometimes you really have to cut your losses, like with sea level rise. I mean, we can't save all the cities from sea level rise. We have to really think, and I know it's terrible, and it's one of the worst discussions because nobody wants to move, but we have to really think of, of creating capacity for people to move in areas that are less less hot yeah. or less affected by sea level rise. And, and, and we could do it. I mean, it's possible. But it's it's painful and it's difficult and it takes it's it's a difficult political decision and a lot of politicians don't want to take the burden yeah. of, of, of that. And some of these places where you cannot adapt are places where it's not about daytime high temperatures. It's really about nighttime high temperatures. That's right. Those are the deadly ones. Because there is no moment in the day that the body's had a chance to cool down. That's so true. That's the deadly part is nighttime temperatures, not daytime temperatures, because the body 
can handle daytime temperatures much better if it has rested and has found an equilibrium, a balance of its temperatures, internal temperatures during the night, during sleep, when it's supposed to rest. If you don't do that, then your body goes into a total whack yeah. and your organs are starting to malfunction. I always find it really difficult to try and explain wet bulb temperature. This is the idea where you combine the temperature that you can see on a temperature scale with the humidity that is measured by meteorological departments and are communicated that way. And when the red bulb temperature rises above 35 degrees Celsius, that's when the extreme deadly heat waves typically happen. Is there a better way in which you can communicate red bulb temperature where heat and humidity could be understood? I think people know it people know it but it's in, very in hard their, to communicate in their in their in their skins as we say which is literal and metaphorical yeah, right sweating. Yeah. because you're sweating and the problem with the wet bulb temperature the reason it becomes deadly is because you can't sweat right your body so cannot your cool. body cannot cool because it can't use sweat to evaporate so that it lowers the temperature and so we basically lose that capacity, which is one of the main capacity that we have because our skin is so so big <laughs> in, in surface area, it actually manages to cool our bodies through sweating. And if we can't do that, then we don't really have much more that we can do. So you have to do other things to cool yourself down. And there are other things that you could do, like putting cold compresses around your neck, for example, really helps to cool the body down. Creating a breeze in your in your house, even with a little fan, but also putting like ice cubes behind or in front of the fan. And if you look on YouTube, you can find like amazing solutions <laughs> about how to create cooler things. People in the night they wet the sheets and they they sleep in in sheets that are that are wet. But again, if you're talking about actually, if you're talking about heat that has to do with with humidity then you that doesn't help at all heat is a terrifying subject because i know the numbers and i know the figures and i've uh, read enough studies but i think this conversation was uh, really good in just the sheer amount of solutions available to deal with heat so thank you for coming on the show oh thank you i agree heat this is why i'm doing what i'm doing because this is what i'm most scared of i'm terrified by heat as you said and yeah. that's why i wake up every day feeling like i'm doing something about so you're it. going to change your uh, job title to chief cool officer <laughs> no <laughs> no chief cool officer no i think a chief heat officer is is more apt thank you <laughs> thank you As urban populations boom, cities will need to work out not only how to accommodate all those people, but to do it in a way that is more resilient to extreme weather events, including heat waves. There are few quick fixes, and this kind of adaptation will need planning now to meet the demands of the future. Thanks for listening to Zero. Each week, Bloomberg Green publishes hundreds of stories about the climate crisis and its solutions, including a recent one by my colleague, Olivia Rudgard about how a medieval town outside London is dealing with coastal erosion. 
So I recently went to Norfolk, um, which is on the east coast of England, to visit a town called Haysborough, which has been really badly affected by coastal erosion. It's a really, really historic town. It's been there for hundreds of years and it's built on a really soft cliff. So it's really being badly affected by the impacts from the waves. One really interesting way you can see this impact is actually if you go on Google Maps. On Street View, there's a particular road that in 2009, you can sort of see it disappearing into the distance. People's homes were there. And if you go to that exact same spot now, I went and stood there. There's just a road closed sign and then and then a cliff. It's a really interesting illustration of how quickly this process is happening. I went there because there's been a decision made to stop defending it. Um, it's been judged to be too expensive. And I wanted to find out what that's like for the people who live there. It's a very specific feeling that you have when your home and your neighbours and everything is, is sort of being lost to this inexorable process. And it's not the only place in the world where this is going to happen. People living on vulnerable coastlines are going to go through similar things. So I wanted to ask the question, what can be done to ameliorate that situation and, and make things a little bit easier for people? To read Olivia's article and see the photos of the disappearing coastline, check out the link we've put in the show notes. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share it with a friend or someone who doesn't want their ice cream to melt too fast. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Laura Milan and Kira Bindram. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.